0: Today is November the 29th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a core in talk show. The pandemic causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enables us to know what technology issues were on the minds of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the first amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.live on the internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The five-day office week is dead. Nicholas Bloom is a professor of economics at Stanford University. Based on his studies, working from home is here to stay. He says he can prove it with data, Lots and lots of data showing that returning to the office is dead on arrival. Well, what is this proof? A telling data point is the number tracking how many Americans swipe and tap electronic cards to gain entry into their offices. This month, occupancy rates were at 50% of February 2020 levels. That is shocking. Only half as many days are spent in the office compared with pre-pandemic days. That number has flatlined not only in office buildings in San Francisco and New York, but also in workplaces like Atlanta, Charlotte, North Carolina, Dallas, Denver, and Philadelphia, Blue and Red, Inland and Coastal. Northern and Southern workers who might have disagreed on pandemic-related behaviors like mask-wearing and vaccine boosters have quietly united behind work-from-home habits Throughout 2023, work from home levels aren't as high as they were during the pandemic's first peak in early 2020, when 62% of full day paid work happened at home. People began filtering back to the office as the pandemic waned, but they did so only to a point. By December of 2022 last year, 29% of work days were happening from home. There was a slight dip after the winter holidays to 27% in January of 2023. But as of July, we are back up at 31%. Return to office has stored out. Share of workdays spent at home, 60%. After a spike at the beginning of the pandemic, Americans still spend about a third of their workdays at home. Hybrid work arrangements have killed a return to office hype. Employees don't have to deal with the daily hassle and cost of a commute. In fact, the process of getting to work is more despised by employees than the need to actually work. At the end of the day, despite all the noise some business executives have made to the contrary, remote work saves companies money. It cuts overhead, boosts productivity, and is profitable. And what is profitable in a capitalistic economy sticks. Thankfully, remote work also has major benefits for society, including improving the climate by cutting billions of miles of weekly commuting and supporting families by liberating parents' time. Companies like Amazon, Meta, Salesforce, and Zoom discovered that many of their best performers love working from home and that enforcing a -a five-day-a-week return to the office would have meant calling their top talent. What about the future? Could a recession and a change in our historically tight job market give bosses the upper hand and roll back these gains? Not likely. Remote work is likely to increase, driven by two powerful economic forces. First, the U.S. data going back to the 1960s reveals a mere 0.4% of full days were worked from home in 1965. That doubled roughly every 15 years until 2019, driven by improving technology. First came personal computers in the 1980s, then laptops in the 1990s, and the Internet opened up more possibilities in the 2000s, followed by cloud file sharing and video calls in the 2010s. This rate of technological progress is accelerating, as higher rates of remote working led companies to develop ever better software and hardware. Second in the data we see that more than 75% of startups allow employees flexible working locations. Startup companies have been born in an era when having an office is optional and meeting customers and clients online is standard. Many of these companies have saved capital by foregoing offices and have saved on expensive urban salaries by hiring remote employees globally. Today's new companies have nearly twice as many days' work from home as those founded 20 years ago. As these young companies grow and mature, they will turn into tomorrow's medium and large companies, bringing their remote-friendly practices with them. Perhaps, as important, their founding chief executives will grow into tomorrow's business leaders. In 10 years, expect to see leading chief executives and entrepreneurs actively embracing hybrid work rather than begging employees to return to the office. Change isn't easy. Some downtowns will need to reinvent themselves, but really do we see a change so profoundly positive for the majority of America's businesses and workers? Companies, employees, and society all benefit. Typically, reforms involve trade-offs, with some groups winning and other groups losing. Remote work has been good for almost everyone involved. We should support this golden moment and lay the five-day office week Movement arrest. Nvidia is sued for stealing trade secrets after screen sharing blunder showed rival company's code. Nvidia is facing a lawsuit filed by French automotive company Valeo after a screen sharing blunder by one of its employees. According to Valeo's complaint, Mohammed Manizorazaman. An engineer for NVIDIA, who used to work for its company, had mistakenly showed its source code files on his computer as he was sharing his screen during a meeting with both firms in 2022. Valeo's employees quickly recognized the code and took screenshots before Monterey's was notified of his mistake. To note, Valeo and NVIDIA are working together on advanced parking and driving assistance technology offered by a manufacturer to its customers. Valeo used to be in charge of both software and hardware sides of the manufacturer's parking assistance tech. In 2021, however, the bigger corporation won the contract to develop its parking assistance software. Valeo wrote in its lawsuit that its former employee who helped it develop its parking and driving assistance systems had realized that his exposure and access to his proprietary technologies would make him exceedingly valuable to NVIDIA. Manorazaman allegedly gave his personal email unauthorized access to Vallejo's systems to steal tens of thousands of files and six gigabytes of source code shortly after that development. He then left Vallejo for a few months later and took the stolen information with him when he was given a senior position at NVIDIA, the complaint reads, He also worked on the very same project he was involved in for Vallejo, which is why he was present at that video conference. Valeo said its former employee admitted to stealing its software and that German police found its documentation and hardware pinned on Manarazaman's war when his home was raided. According to Bloomberg, he was already convicted of infringement of business secrets in a German court and was ordered to pay $15,750 in September. In a letter dated June 2022, Nvidia's lawyers told the plaintiff's counsel that the company has no interest in Vallejo's code or its alleged trade secrets and has taken prompt concrete steps to protect its clients' asserted rights. Vallejo still sued the company earlier this month, however, and said that NVIDIA had saved millions and perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars in development costs and generated profits that it did not properly earn and to which it was not entitled by stealing its trade secrets. This is but another proof that competition continues to heat up in the autonomous driving market. Back in 2017, Waymo accused Uber of colluding with his former employee, Anthony Lewandowski, to steal over 14,000 confidential and proprietary design files. Lewandowski was sentenced to 18 months in prison, but he was pardoned six months later by President Donald Trump. This is a case where, how dumb can you get by showing what you stole to the people you stole from? Oh boy. Cable TV and satellite risk fading into the background and faster than anyone had expected. A chasm is growing between live streaming services and cable and satellite providers when it comes to customer loyalty, according to JT Power Technology Media and Telecom Intelligence Report. Live TV streaming customers are only 12% likely to swap services in the next year. The odds of cable and satellite customers Changing providers, however, is nearly doubled at 21%. The data illustrates the trend of cord cutting seen over the last few years with viewers abandoning traditional cable providers in favor of streaming services. Historically, streamers are cheaper, more flexible alternatives to cable. For example, the cost for live TV streaming averages $69 a month, while cable and satellite averages a month. The data analytics company found that multiple factors are contributing to the divide between the two types of providers. On a 1,000-point scale, live TV streaming services outperform cable and satellite in cost of service, 156 points. Customer care, 80 points. Performance and reliability, 64 points. And billing and payments, 60 points. In September, J.D. Power found that YouTube TV was the service with the happiest customers. Hulu Plus Live TV came in second place. Cable companies, meanwhile, are ranked notoriously low when it comes to customer satisfaction. In this report, J.D. Power said that cable and satellite providers benefited from their status as a legacy model and the difficulty customers face when trying to cancel or switch. This is no longer the case, as customers now have more options available to them. Cable and satellite providers must step up the game and rise to the occasion, according to the data analytics company. These providers can no longer rest on their laurels, the report said. They run the very real risk of fading into the background and faster than anyone had anticipated. The FCC enforces. Stronger Rules to Protect Customers Against SIM Swapping Attacks The U.S. Federal Communications Commission, that's the FCC, has adopted new rules to protect consumers from SIM swapping attacks and port-out fraud. SIM swapping involves transferring a user's account to a SIM card controlled by a scammer, while port-out fraud occurs when a bad actor transfers a victim's phone number to another service provider without their knowledge. The new rules, which were first proposed in July of this year, requires wireless providers to implement secure methods of authenticating customers before redirecting their phone numbers to new devices or providers. Additionally, customers must be immediately notified whenever a SIM change or port out request is made on their accounts allowing them to take appropriate action to secure against such attacks. Sim swapping has become a serious threat. Enabling threat actors to infiltrate corporate networks and gain access to victims' online accounts by gaining control of a victim's phone, attackers can divert SMS-based two-factor authentication codes and take over financial accounts, social media accounts, and more. FCC Commissioner... Jeffrey Starks emphasized the importance of secure verification procedures and reliable privacy guarantees from wireless providers. He stated consumers should be able to go about their day without fearing that someone might take control of their phone without warning. FCC launches inquiry into the impact of AI on robocores and robotechs, in addition to enforcing stronger rules against SIM-swapping attacks. The FCC has also announced an inquiry into the impact of artificial intelligence on robocalls and robotexts. The agency recognizes that AI has the potential to improve analytics tools used to block unwanted calls and texts, but it also acknowledges that AI could be used by bad actors to defraud consumers through calls and text messages. The FCC aims to understand how AI can be leveraged to combat robocores and robotechs effectively while ensuring consumer protection and trust in communication networks. These initiatives by the FCC demonstrate the agency's commitment to protecting consumers from various forms of telecommunications fraud and abuse. Non-fiction authors sue OpenAI and Microsoft for copyright infringement. A group of nonfiction authors has filed a lawsuit against U.S.-based tech giant Microsoft and artificial intelligence AI company OpenAI, alleging that the two companies trained its AI ChatGPT tool to copy their work without their consent. In a complaint filed in the Manhattan Federal Court, author Julian Santon, the lead plaintiff in the lawsuit, alleged that he and thousands of other nonfiction authors did not receive any compensation for their work being copied by AI. The complaint noted that Microsoft and OpenAI enjoyed financial success commercializing their work, making billions of dollars through revenue on its AI products. Nonfiction authors often spend years conceiving, researching, and writing their creations. While OpenAI and Microsoft refuse to pay nonfiction authors, their AI platform is worth a fortune, the lawsuit read. The basis of the OpenAI platform is nothing less than the rampant theft of copyrighted works. The complaint also alleges that both companies collaborated closely on creating and using their AI-powered products, such as the popular ChatGPT chatbot, to recognize and process text inputs from users and generate text that has been calibrated to mimic a human writing response. Defendants have made commercial reproductions of millions, maybe billions, of copyrighted works without any compensation to authors, without a license and without permission. The lawsuit read in doing so, they have infringed on the exclusive rights of plaintiff, sanctons, and other writers and right holders whose work has been copied and appropriated to train their artificial intelligence models. The lawsuits come amid a recent shakeup between the two tech companies as Sam Altman, the co-founder and CEO of OpenAI, returned to his post with the company just days after being ousted due to an internal investigation by the company's board. In response to Altman's ouster from the company, more than 600 OpenAI employees signed an open letter threatening to join Altman at Microsoft if their company's current board of directors didn't step down from their positions. OpenAI is known for launching the popular ChatGPT last November, an AI-powered chatbot that automatically generates human-like responses to users' queries in a way that is more advanced than previous technology. The popularity of OpenAI's chatbot resulted in another major tech companies, including Microsoft, introducing or announcing their own AI-implemented services this year. Sancton, on behalf of the group of nonfiction authors, is seeking damages from the two companies for their large-scale infringement of their copyrighted works as well as injunctive relief. FCC's New Rules on Digital Discrimination The Federal Communications Commission has recently passed new rules aimed at preventing digital discrimination by telecom providers. These rules allow the FCC to hold telecom companies accountable for providing unequal service to customers based on factors such as income level, race, or religion. The new rules were developed and adopted as part of the Biden Administration 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, which mandates the FCC to address digital discrimination. The goal is to ensure that communities lacking adequate broadband access, often associated with residential segregation and economic disadvantage, are not further disadvantaged. Under these rules, the FCC has the authority Define find telecom companies that fail to provide equal connectivity to different communities without adequate justification, such as financial or technical challenges. The rules specifically target disparities in Internet speed that correlate with household income and race. The need for these rules arises from previous findings that certain Internet service providers, including AT&T and Verizon, Offer different speeds to neighborhoods based on income and racial demographics. Lower-income neighborhoods with fewer white residents often experience slow Internet speeds while paying the same price as areas with faster speeds. The FCC's decision to implement these rules were not unanimous, as it passed with a 3-2 vote. Critics argue that the rules represent an overextension of the FCC's power, Jonathan Spalter, the CEO of U.S. Telecom, an organization representing major telecom providers, believe that the FCC's actions are intrusive, vague, and ultimately harmful. He suggests that the framework goes against Congress' goal of ensuring equal access to the Internet for all customers. On the other hand, supporters of the new rules believe they can significantly improve the broadband coverage throughout the United States. They argue that low-income families and people of color are more likely to live in areas with limited competition, resulting in lower-quality networks, poor service, and high prices. The FCC's authority to enforce these rules is seen as a step towards addressing these disparities. In addition to the new rules, the FCC will establish an improved customer portal where complaints about digital discrimination can be submitted and reviewed. The agency will consider factors such as broadband deployment, network upgrades, and maintenance across communities when evaluating providers for potential rule violations. This approach aims to address the disparities in Internet access throughout the country. The FCC's new rules on digital discrimination empower the agency to hold telecom providers accountable for providing unequal service to customers based on income level, race, or religion. These rules are part of the Biden administration's efforts to address disparities in broadband access and improve Internet coverage across the United States, while critics argue that the rules exceed the FCC authority and supporters believe they are necessary to ensure equal access to the Internet for all customers. presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is
1: Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, and what IT can do for you. This one is one that I've talked about. I talk about this on a regular basis, and I look back on one of the most um. The most amazing productive items that I did that was kind of outside of the the wheelbox of IT. And so frequently we, we, we look at IT and IT is there to keep the servers running. They're there to, yes, do some coding and to come up with numbers and so forth. But one item that I did along the way that I saw the most benefit out of, the most result was moving us not not a matter of you know hundreds of miles but i moved us a little bit further forward by moving us towards a paperless office well not really paperless it was a reduced paper office I'm going to have you pause right there for a moment. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how much paper is going on in your life, how much paper is going on around the office. How much time is being spent on putting the paper off of your desk into a filing cabinet and then it sits there for however long? How much space is that filing cabinet taking up? How much time is taken when you have to go retrieve that file? You've got to find it and then you have to pull it out and then you have to remember to put it back into the filing cabinet or all of these other things. And this is just a little bit of how this goes and some. Some companies are better at this, and some companies have a lot of these documents are moved into Word documents, and they just stay on the network, and uh, and that's fine there. But we still have so much paper that goes on around our lives, less now that we went through COVID. We did a lot of migrating from from paper-filled offices to, well, we can't send paper, we can't mail these files out to everybody, but it still is a problem and it still continues to this day where companies are putting out just large amounts of paperwork everywhere, especially when we have these different situations where, like DocuSign, you can digitally sign your signature to a piece of paper and it, it's perfectly valid there. And we can email so much more. But let's let's think about this for just a moment. How much paperwork in your office, if you're in the office, how much paperwork goes missing? One of the numbers that comes forward is about one out of ten documents will go missing and will need to be recreated. That's a that's that's a lot. And it depends, of course. Uh, The importance of it depends on whether you're in an industry that is heavily regulated or not. I was in an industry that was vastly regulated. It was in the aerospace industry. We made parts for airplanes. And if you have no idea how how crucial that paperwork is, then you might want to look into it. I'll tell you that every piece, every nut, every bolt, every piece of metal that goes on that airplane has a paper trail going on back to the purchasers, the manufacturers, the people who made the metal and where they got that metal from and all of the testing that went all the way along. That is, it's an amazing amount of documentation there. So, in the aerospace industry, we had to put our hands on that very quickly. So, we moved into a document management system called, I'm going to name drop it, it's, it's called DocuWare, and it worked out really well. It put everything into one spot for us. One of the greatest examples of how much that had furthered us is that we took, we, we had three full time file clerks. That was what they did all day long. And they would be requested to find a file and it might take a day or two or a week to get that file off to one of the product managers, one of the people who needed that file. And then they'd have to go put it away and they'd have to keep track of all of these different volumes of information. And we tracked it down to it took, yeah, a bunch of time. To track all of these things. So what did we do? Well, we put that DocuWare software into place. And they went through and they started scanning every single document as they were processing it. Before they filed it away. And they would file it into a new location that said, hey, we put this into the computer system. And all everybody had to do was make sure that they looked up that file. Ahead of time in the computer system. As a matter of fact, the file clerks learned how to not only scan, but also look up and uh, and check to see ahead of time. You know, Johnny requests uh, this particular folder. Okay, we're going to check it out. We're going to see if that folder is already in the system. Hey, Johnny, you didn't check the system. You didn't check DocuWare yet. Oh, okay. And that educated Johnny, that kept Johnny up to date with making sure he had the he would look into the system. His response time for getting that paperwork in front of him was no longer a day or a week or even hours, but simply seconds. And that restored so much productivity back through so many different layers of the employees at the company. Yes, those three file clerks, they became file processors. They did scanning, they did sorting, they did all kinds of these different little fold spindle mutilate digitally and then put the paperwork away, hopefully to never have to be seen again. And that was exciting and we got so much out of that. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank.
0: Thank you, Benjamin. Black Friday is no longer just a date. Black Friday is known as the biggest shopping day of the year and got its name because it's the moment retailers finally make it into a profit or in the black for the calendar year. It's a brilliant marketing shtick for the retailers. Not only do people go crazy on that day and spend a lot of money on total crap, but it sets the table for the whole Christmas season. According to Wallet Hub's Holiday Shopping Survey, 35% of items at major retailers will offer no savings compared to their pre-Black Friday prices. A separate analysis of previous Black Friday sales found that 98% of the deals were the same price or cheaper at other points during the year. None were cheaper on Black Friday alone. As for the stuff you want to buy, think about all the stuff you bought on Black Friday last year and the year before that. Can you even remember what you bought and how much of it do you still have? One piece of advice. Before you start spending, first work out your numbers. It's the amount you're taking out of your retirement savings, savings that you're probably going to need, and how for each dollar you blow on some junk on Friday. Time will say this is an extreme way of looking at things. After all, the goal in life isn't to live on bread and water and die with a ton of money, right? And surely the goal also isn't to overspend now and then end up in your golden years living on bread and water because you didn't save enough money. There is a huge middle ground between extreme frugalism and blowing money on junk. Before you go shopping for Black Friday specials, determine how much discretionary income is available. Understanding disposable income and discretionary income when it comes to personal finances. It's important to understand the concepts of disposable income and discretionary income. While these terms are sometimes used interchangeably, They actually represent two different perspectives on an individual financial situation. Disposable income, also known as disposable personal income, refers to the amount of money that an individual or household has available to spend or save after income taxes have been deducted. In other words, it's the income that remains after taxes. Discretionary income is, on the other hand, the amount of an individual's income that's left for spending, investing, or saving after paying taxes, and covering necessary expenses such as food, shelter, and clothing. It represents the portion of income that can be used at the individual's discretion. To determine how much discretionary income is available, one needs to subtract necessary expenses from disposable income. This discretionary income can then be used for non-essential purposes, savings, investments, or other financial goals. Therefore, it is important to assess one's financial situation and prioritize spending based on personal needs and goals. Remember, understanding the difference between disposable income and discretionary income can help individuals make informed decisions about their finances and allocate their resources effectively. Well, here are some tips for buying electronics for the Black Friday period, which is now more than one day. When it comes to buying electronics, here's a few tips to keep in mind. Buy what you need today. It's generally recommended to buy electronics based on your current needs rather than future possibilities. This is because technology evolves rapidly, and what may seem cutting-edge today could become outdated or less functional in the future. Waiting for newer models can often lead to better features and lower prices. Consider physical differences. While reviews can provide valuable insights, it's also important to physically handle the product if possible. This is because ergonomic preferences can vary from person to person. What may be comfortable for one individual may not be suitable for another. So, if at all possible, try to test the product yourself before making a purchase. And if you're buying a computer, check the CPU TPM compliance for computers. If you're buying a computer, it's worth checking if the CPU, that's a central processing unit, is TPM or Trusted Platform Module compliant. TPM is a security measure that provides hardware-based protection for sensitive data, such as encryption keys. It helps ensure the integrity of the system and protects against unauthorized access. Remember, these tips can help you make more informed decisions when buying electronics. Consider whether to buy a product. Considering whether to buy a product when you're unsure about whether or not to buy a particular item, it's often a good idea to err on the side of caution and say no. There are a few reasons for this. The product you didn't buy may turn out to be the best buy. It's possible that by not purchasing a specific product, you may later realize that it wasn't the best choice for you. This could be due to factors such as price drops, better alternatives becoming available, or simply realizing that the product doesn't meet your needs as well as you initially thought. Black Friday specials can be overwhelming. Black Friday sales often comes with a wide range of deals and discounts, which makes it challenging to make well-informed decisions. It's easy to get caught up in the excitement and make impulsive purchases. Take a step back and carefully consider whether a product is truly necessary can help prevent buyer's remorse. presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. For this week, is the Holiday Gift Guide.
1: There are a lot of different things we've been talking about. We've been going through so many different products, and we've got so many more to go. Marty Winston's been hanging out, and we just tons of these things. What do we have
2: on the list here? I'm going to have to lead into this because it's unfamiliar turf for some of you. Mm -hmm. Join me on a journey to that small round socket somewhere near the bottom center of your car's dashboard.
1: The lighter plug?
2: Well, in your grandfather's era, there was an (laughs) ashtray down there because so many people (laughs) smoked while driving. Mm -hmm. And the socket held a resistive coil that got hot enough to work as what it was called a cigarette lighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because of its size, a a cigar lighter. That hole did used to be called a cigar lighter or cigarette lighter plug or just a lighter plug. Today, oh no, it's a 12-volt accessory socket. For a while, (laughs) it was where people would plug in things like dash cams or radar detectors. Mm -hmm. And just as an FYI, most are on 10-amp fuses. 10 amps Mm -hmm. at 12 volts is 120 watts. So, Why the history and the tech? I got in a U green, the letter U pasted onto the front of the word green, a U green model CD 293, three port fast car charger. It's a charger, three ports, one USB-A, two USB-C. The first USB-C port delivers 30 watts and it is PD, power delivery compatible. That's what the next generation of cordless Qi chargers will feed. Or if you're not plugging in a PD-compatible device, it's still good for 12 watts, meaning 2.4 amps. The second USB-C port provides 100 PD watts, and there's a 100-watt label next to it. The third port is the wider USB-A, also 12 watts for standard gear or 22.5 watts for QC3, Quick Charge 3-compatible gear. With that much power handling, it's nice to see overheat protection on the one hand and under collar air venting on the other. It also explains why there's a short blip power feed pause when you change what's plugged into it as it intelligently redistributes where the power goes. If you have a notebook or tablet with power gluttony going on, the odds are this will charge it at full speed. For me, it means the Qi charging desktop mount gets what it needs. I can keep my notebook charged if I bring it along, and my wife can charge and power her phone all at once. This is the Ugreen CD293 130-watt USB-C three-port car charger. It comes with a one-meter-long USB-C to USB-C cable ready to work with a 100-watt port, all for about 27 bucks on Amazon.
1: All right. So this is you know this is one of the uh one of the things that I've been you know trying to figure out because you know I, I one of the approaches I went a while back was getting one of those you know 12 volt to 120 volts and then I'm converting it all back over to you know the the yeah, you know yeah. the, the Dell charger or whatever. So well, so I like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the, you're, you're dealing with much improved circuitry. A lot of the power stuff now is GAN technology, so it doesn't get as hot, doesn't have to be as big. And uh, the adaptive approach this takes is just anti-stupid. <laughs> there you go, anti-stupid. I love that. <laughs> well, this is... For the car and for the driver, okay. my car is a Subaru Forester yeah. with wired Android Auto. Oh, You got to have the cable. And I wanted to eliminate dangling cables. Yeah. So I added a wireless charging phone holder, but mm-hmm. the car still wanted a cable to make the Android Auto connection. Now, I asked Autocast, that's O-T-T-O-C-A-S-T, Autocast, mm-hmm, yeah. to let me review their A2 Air wireless Android Auto adapter. It's a small dongle, less than two and a half inches square and just over half an inch thick. It comes with a short cable. You need to plug it into the same USB port where a wired Android Auto cable connection would normally go. Only now, there's no cable dangling into the car. Since I already had wired Android Auto running, all I had to do was pair the AutoCast with my phone. And in a few seconds, Android Auto filled my dashboard entertainment screen. Once set up. It's automatic when you start the car. There's nothing to plug in, no buttons to push to get Android Auto on that screen. I dare say, and few others would dare, that with the AutoCast 2 Air Pro Wireless Android Auto Adapter, everything's automatic. It's about $120. Oh. Bucks. <laughs> Does that put me on the naughty list? <laughs> Shame on you. Oh, man. <laughs>
1: Automatic. Okay, so I do have a question because you focused on Android. Do they have an iPhone version? Uh,
2: yes. Okay. Yes, they do. And they also have a dual version. Uh, what's the, the iPhone? Our car 2 Play or something like that?
1: Uh, Apple CarPlay.
2: CarPlay. Yeah, car, yeah. CarPlay, yeah. Fine.
1: My, 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 I've got a Beamer. Yeah, I love the car except for it's too old to have either of those. So. I don't worry wow. about it, though. I I, I don't. I,
2: I don't. My wife Let's, has it. My your, wife... your your commute to work is what? One stairway?
1: Uh, yeah, 14 stair steps. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I don't worry about it too much. But yeah, you get the All point right. there. <laughs>
2: so All right. What's the next one? This one, if you're into drafting or CAD or uh, yeah. architecture, anything of yeah. the sort, what if a ruler could shapeshift? I mean, what if you wanted something other than. Eight or ten or sixteen or twenty or twenty five or thirty-two divisions per inch or per whatever. Okay. For people who work with both real world measurements and CAD or blueprints or mechanical drawings, mm-hmm. that would be almost magical. Any of those people, any of those people on your gift list? Oh, me. I, yeah, you. took I, I, okay. I,
1: I, I took drafting in high school. That was uh, uh, that was uh, one of the more fun things I did in high school, as far as uh, classes.
2: Well, I, I enlisted, so I, I, I didn't have to dodge the draft. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh If you got that, you're really old. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Hozo Design H O Z O makes the Neo ruler. Neo, its marks aren't inked or etched; they're LED lines. Okay. It offers eight scaling modes, and within those, a total of 93 built-in scales, 41 metric, 52 U.S., I guess imperial, if the normal is, is a normal term for that. Yeah, yeah. But what if those built-in scales aren't a fit for the drawing or graphic versus real-word measurements you're dealing with? You can enter both measurements, let the ruler figure out the ratio, and save that okay. as a custom scale. All right. One more trick, an equal divider function that, you know, for any measurement that fits, moves its LED lines to mark from two to 12 equal divisions, and its display tells you the length of each. Okay. They offer a caliper accessory, and there's a setting to rotate between normal and caliper modes. For anybody working in or learning about architecture, engineering, model making, 3D printing, design, real estate, drafting, or surveying, for example, (laughs) there are more. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more cool tool. The Hozo Designs Neo Ruler is about $130 on Amazon.
1: I'm thinking about this one uh, just the way you're describing it, and tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, Like for woodworking, like you've got this piece of board that you want to divide up into three separate, equally-sized boards.
2: Yeah, it's great for that. Also, if you have... uh, If you have the blueprints to the house yeah. and you know that they really turned out to be approximate because it was hand-built, then you go and measure <laughs> yeah. a real-world space and you come back to the blueprint, you can adjust what you know about the scaling by okay. using the ruler. So it, it, it it's very cool for correcting their fantasy version of what their actual <laughs> measurements were.
1: It's, it's a house. It's roughly this size. It's all
2: good, right? Uh, right. Sure. Now, speaking of the house. Yeah. Yeah. And if you or your overnight guests own an electric car yeah you can't just plug it into the wall or can you uh, north yeah. North Shore safety mm-hmm. okay sent us their new line guard evse two level two car charger Okay, one end plugs into a two hundred and forty volt fifty amp outlet uh, there's a lot of stuff that some garages have that fit that but Get your electrician in. It, it's a NEMA 650 outlet. The other end plugs into your car's charging port. Now, if you have a Tesla, you have to buy an adapter, but for most cars, it just plugs in. Now, why Why would you do it? A level two means that for most cars, a six to eight hour overnight charge is good for the whole next day, adding about okay. 25 miles of range for every hour that it's connected over most of the charging cycle slows down toward the end. Mm-hmm, a few yeah. special, A few special things about this model. First, its charging cord is the maximum length that regulations allow. Second, H- how long is that? Twenty-five feet.
1: Okay, all
2: right. Uh, Ohio-based North Shore Safety is an old hand at GFCI ground fault interruption, okay. and that's built into this cable, so it doesn't need to be in the wall plug. Which is, you don't have to have a GFCI wall plug, and that's especially useful if you take the cord with you for charging both at home and mm-hmm, to work. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, its ground fault interrupter triggers at 16 to 20 milliamps, a fraction of what a little coin oh, cell wow. watch battery delivers. Yeah, yeah. And and it handles huge power levels without even breathing hard. Third, the electronics are an Anima 3R rated enclosure, weatherproof, because with that much power, right. you can't let a puddle become a death trap, right? There's yeah. There's a lot of extra safety here too, from constantly verifying the outlet's ground connection to operating reliably at temperatures where people can't. The North Shore Line Guard EVSE 2 Level Two charger is about five hundred bucks, but it moves your fuel okay. cost. It moves your fuel cost to about a nickel a mile, and you can sleep as charging happens. No more spending time finding, getting to, and charging at a commercial station. Oh, and you sleep better not worrying about the safety compromises you might have suffered with the marketplace's cheap alternatives.
1: So I'm thinking uh and I'm I am i am thinking of my house and I'm thinking uh the outlet n- maybe for my dryer. Yep. Is is that do you know is that normally that that NEMA Oh, it's going uh, to be a 26250 that you you were referencing. A uh, uh, 650 or 650,
2: okay. Uh, not, not normally, but that's changing just an outlet. You probably already have the wiring you need, which is a uh, gauge yeah, eight yeah. to 10 as a rule. Okay. Uh, you're going to so, have the 240 volts there and you just need to have, uh, this uses 32 amps, but rating 50 just gives you headroom.
1: Sure. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the, the distance there that would re- easily reach into the garage. So yeah. Okay. That makes sense. All right, we've got uh, only about a minute and a half left. Oh, I've got a quickie here. Okay.
2: It's the Gravistar Alpha 65 Gan Fast Wall Charger. You know who wants this one? It looks like a tiny war machine robot that pounces on electrical outlets <laughs> okay. as the top of its head feeds three charging ports. The Gravistar Alpha 65 GAN charger is smaller, cooler, more efficient. The USB-A port working alone can feed 18 (laughs) watts. The middle USB-C port working alone can feed 20 watts. And the end USB-C port can feed 65 watts if it's working alone. Those numbers drop a bit when using two to three ports at a time, but it's all documented. The robot motif includes moving parts. Even the AC power prongs fold in and out, plus blue eye-spaced front lights that show power status in real time. And its outer shell is flame-resistant. Inside, the electronics have seven forms of load protection plus interference filtering. So it looks like a robot toy, but it's a heck of a good (laughs) charger. Uh, the Gravastar Alpha 65 is about fifty bucks on Amazon.
1: So I laughed in the middle of this. I, I should explain to the listeners it, 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 through a number of these different things. You hold the, you hold them up while you're talking about them, and I will tell you, you're right. It does look like this little like Transformers or like, it's a little <laughs> robot. It's absolutely adorable. Oh man, that is Marty Winston. I am Benjamin Rockwell, and there's plenty more to come. Oh, yeah. Definitely good ideas. So that's Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. We'll be back with a lot more.
0: Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State region. Log on to the Club website for more information on Remote Meeting ID. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, December the first, twenty twenty-three. Meeting time is eight p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Their website is acgnj.org. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, December the seventh, twenty twenty-three. Meeting time is seven p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is WPCUG.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, December the 8th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is LIMAC.org. The Kingsbyte Computer Club meets Tuesday, December the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. The phone number to confirm is 347-278-7320. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, December 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting, and the website is bcug.com. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, December the 14th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. Happy computing and Black Friday's coming up. The best buy may very well be what you don't buy. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.